Well, good morning. We are continuing in our series on the book of James this morning, and we've made it to the second half of the book. We're going to be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, if you want to go ahead and turn there, or you can follow along on the screen. If you would, stand with me, and I will read our text for today. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. You can grab a seat. I'll pray. Jesus, we just ask that you would be here with us this morning, that as this text says, that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you. Would we have open hearts to receive this word from you? We would hear the practical lessons and application that James has for us, that we would walk out of this room transformed people, that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only that our faith would have hands and feet in the world that would not just be something that we keep inside of our heads. You're a good God and we trust you. We're thankful that we have guides like James um, to walk us through the daily lives that we live um, and have your word actually make a difference. And so we just ask you to be here with us, be with me. Um, any words that I speak um, that aren't from you just fall away but that you would be heard and you would be present with us today. We love you. Amen. All right. I feel like Jonathan and Kyle have done a great job covering the background on James, both as a person and as a book. So we're not going to delve too deeply into the weeds there. Um, but if you haven't been here, let me catch you up because James is kind of a unique book. One way that it's unique is in its style. James is full of imperatives, more so than any other New Testament book. And it's kind of similarly, it reads similarly to wisdom literature like the book of Proverbs. So it's these short, seemingly independent little sections instead of this one cohesive sermon that a lot of other New Testament books or epistles are. So it's not to say that there's no arch overarching themes, but it's almost more like it's summaries of a bunch of different sermons that have been collected into this one group that's then being shared with us with this tone of pastoral exhortation. 
Now, the second way that James is unique is because of his very practical content. So no other New Testament book is going to focus so much on this level of dynamic day-to-day living. And James isn't really trying to teach new theology here. Instead, honestly, he's going to kind of get all up in our business and powerfully make the point that being a follower of Jesus ought to affect the way that we actually live. I went to a preaching conference earlier this year, and one of the speakers there made a comment that really stuck with me. And he said, making something practical is not making it less spiritual. And I think that's exactly what we're going to find here. So the key problem that James is addressing throughout the book is essentially our failure to put faith into practice. He isn't trying to say that your deeds are what save you because we're talking about the works that believers do after they've been saved, to quote Paul, by faith alone. But what James is implying is that if your faith is not producing works, we've got to wonder where your heart actually is because genuine faith should be evidenced by and through a changed life. The New Testament scholar Douglas Moo writes, James is resolutely opposing any form of Christianity that drifts into a sterile, actionless orthodoxy. As important and necessary as is right belief, it is much less than true Christian belief if it is not accompanied by works. So this book is a powerful, earnest call for wholehearted repentance, followed by action in your lives. It's about having an inner and an outer consistency, a harmony between who you are on the inside and what you present to the world around you. In other words, a congruence between what you say you believe and how you actually behave on a daily basis. And just a personal note from me, if there is one lesson that I've learned in my adult life, it is having this inner and outer congruence. There is nothing that I have found to be more freeing than having the person that I am on the inside be the same as the one that I'm presenting to the world. Now, that's not to say that if I'm having a terrible day, I can then go treat everyone around me terribly because I feel like everything is going badly. But it does mean that if I'm feeling badly that I can be honest about that and I can be honest that this is, this is just a hard time. So, why do we need this message? The question I wanna put before you, kind of in preparation for walking through the text, is this. Do I, do we, do you truly see the Bible as a book to be obeyed? And for the record, this is why we need this message. And it has absolutely nothing to do with how well I preach it. I might make this really boring. But on a meta level, whether we see the Bible as a book to be obeyed, and by proxy, do I see God as a being to whom I should submit myself and my desires to each and every day? That's really crucial to be honest with yourself about. Now, I don't mean that we need to take every single thing that this book says completely literally. No, don't hear me say that I believe that. If I did, I wouldn't be up here preaching this message, and a lot of us would be in trouble for the polyester blends that we're wearing because those are forbidden in in Deuteronomy. So at the very least, we need to be aware that we are picking and choosing what we do or do not put into practice. And we should have a reason for why we make the decisions that we do. Because it is easy, so easy, to remove ourselves 
from the reality of what James is going to write about, to go purely academic, to use legalism as a cop-out, or to just keep it all in our heads and theologize about it, and in doing so, ignore the entire point that James is making, that our faith should have hands and feet, a mind and a mouth, a wallet and a heart. It is so much easier to just keep our religion in a little box, or even a large box if we're feeling generous, than to admit that it should be affecting every single area of our life. And to me, that is both incredibly convicting and very, very intimidating. I heard Tim Timberlake say once that the Bible should both bless and blister you. And James is going to do just that. Because if the only place that your Christianity exists is inside of your head, then that's not really Christianity. And James isn't going to let us stay in that place. Now, I feel like I need to confess something to you all. Um, when I pulled up this text for, to start preparing for this message, the first thing that I saw was that the subtitle that had been added to this section, which is something that our translators, you know, add, helpfully or not, um, that subtitle was, Submit Yourself to God. And internally, I got to be honest, I was like, oh no. <laughs> because that's just not the lesson that I wanted to sit with this week. And honestly, it didn't sound like a message that you would all would be dying to hear. Um, and I, I told Kyle and Jonathan this last week, and they were both like, well, you don't have to teach on that. Um, but unfortunately for me, I think that I do. I can't, I can't deny that this language of submitting oneself to God, of prayer and obedience, even when it runs contrary to my own desire, has been a theme for me personally this year. I have spent hours of my life engaged in a theological disagreement, but at the end of the day, what it really boils down to is this. Submit yourself to God and do the things that he has called and equipped you to do. Don't just hear the word, do the word. So that's where we're headed. Now, side note, I did go look at a bunch of other translations to see if there were like some alternate themes that we could explore. Um, not because I was you know, trying to get out of teaching on that, but just you know, to see, see what the other options were. Um, and basically, there wasn't as much like cohesiveness in that. A lot of translators focus on the problem that we're going to talk about, being influenced by the world, and some other people focus on the solution, which is drawing near to God or submitting to God. So we're going to explore both of those things, starting with the problem in verses 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So James is going to use a question to introduce his next topic in the book, the quarrels and strife that happen amongst believers. And he starts by asking, what's the source of our quarreling? And he's going to give two different reasons. One, he's going to say, the root cause of our fights is actually this internal war with our own desires, our own passions. And he uses the Greek word, so I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation because I'm not a Greek scholar, um, hedone here, 
which is basically from the same word as that we get the word hedonism. And it means essentially the negative connotation of the word pleasure. So sinful, self-indulgent pleasure. So when our desires are frustrated, when we want more than what we have, when we are envious of or covet what other people possess, James says that those desires left unchecked are going to lead to violence, be it a verbal argument, private infighting, or a national conflict. And his strong language is meant to evoke a strong response. Most of us don't go around plotting how we're going to murder someone who has what we want. But James wants us to recognize the seriousness of what he is talking about. And this should remind you of the teachings of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, which is a text with a lot of parallels to what James is going to talk about. And Jesus says, if you harbor anger towards your brother or sister, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Now, a side note, what disputes is James addressing here? We don't know. And we don't have to know, because James seems much more concerned with the selfishness and the bitterness that he sees between believers than the rights and wrongs of whatever those viewpoints were. The 17th century Jewish philosopher Spinoza writes, I have often wondered that persons who, make profess, who boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. How very sad. You know, some battles really are worth fighting, but they have to be fought without sacrificing our ethics and values as believers. This made me think about a scene from one of my favorite children's books, um, The Mysterious Benedict Society. But you can really take your pick of any like middle grade fiction series. So Harry Potter, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Hunger Games, or you can choose from movies like Star Wars, an MCU film, or The Lord of the Rings, etc. In all of these films or books, there's this moment where the hero or the heroine is faced with a moral dilemma, where they see a way where they could win or achieve their objective or have success. But there's something about the way that it would go down, there's something about what they would have to do to get there that would make them just not that different from the villain or their father. And they have to decide what it is that they're really made of. Will they throw their values out the window for the sake of getting what they want? Or will they do what is right, even if it costs them a victory? And I think this might also be why we find movies like DreamWorks Megamind or Universal Studios Despicable Me like so funny, because they flip that question on its head and they say, of course the protagonist is going to do these terrible, horrible, very bad things because they are a villain. It is their nature. And then, of course, we fall in love with them because we see their transformation story as we watch them realize that they can be something else, something more. So, reason number one we quarrel and fight is because we're letting our destructive desires run rampant. Reason number two we quarrel and fight is because we see our lack, and instead of asking God for what we need, we act out. And that idea of just asking God for what we need, it kind of feels like a little bit like patronizing advice until I like sit with it and I realize that like I don't actually ask God for what I need nearly as often as I should. 
And I feel like this passage is showing us the extreme possible consequences of taking things into our own hands instead of seeking God for what we need, be it a physical necessity of some kind or our desperate need for our desires to be shaped by the Spirit instead of by our own passions. So James says either our problem is no prayer or we don't ask with the right motives. So our problem is selfish prayer. And again, we're reminded of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus himself says, ask and it will be given to you. And the commentator David Gusick in his commentary on James says, we must remember that the purpose of prayer is not to persuade a reluctant God to do our bidding. The purpose of prayer is to align our will with his and in partnership with him to ask him to accomplish his will on earth. So James is telling us that if there's an attitude that's going to frustrate the effectiveness of our prayers, it's going to be our selfishness. And Charles Spurgeon writes, the whole history of mankind shows the failure of evil lustings to obtain their object. He continues, the tragic irony of life lived after worldly and fleshly desires is that it never reaches the goal it gives everything for. So left, led by our selfishness, we find that we are never fully satisfied. Now, in verse 4, James is going to transition into exhortation. And he's going to warn his audience and us that flirting with the world is going to have consequences on our relationship with God. And he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So as Jonathan talked about last week, James makes extensive use of metaphors and illustrations that would have been familiar with an audience who knew both the Torah and the teachings of Jesus. Now, not all of these like, references are quite as like, evident to us as modern readers, but this is one that should be familiar to all of us. James is going to use the language of adultery to make a link to the Old Testament where the covenant relationship between God and his people is described as being like a marriage. So God has joined himself to his people, and they are his bride. Jeremiah 3.20 says, But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. A cry is heard on the barren heights, the weeping and pleading of the people of Israel, because they have perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord their God. So James is making a strongly worded warning to be faithful. And he says that desire for, the desire for friendship with the world is to commit spiritual adultery and become an enemy of God. And we got to note that James doesn't say here that you actually go become a friend of the world. You just want to be one. And so it's about our divided hearts as much about our actual actions here. And this is where this passage can really get me. Because I might not go out and act on my desires, but I, am I entertaining them? That's a different question, and it's a much trickier one. 
So James is going to make no bones about saying that this is a serious matter with real consequences because God has a jealous desire for our friendship, for our relationship with him, however, like, inexplicably. And it's interesting to me that at first glance, it seems like James is saying that we shouldn't have these uncontrolled desires like lust and covetousness, but then he goes on to describe God as being jealous, a word that we often assign a negative connotation with. But I did a little digging, and to me it looks like what the humans are expressing here is a desire for seeking things that are forbidden. Whereas what God is expressing is he, he's exerting his rightful claim on us and our affections. Exodus 25, 20 verse 5 says, You shall not bow down to them or worship them, because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And Zechariah 8.2 says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. And if you look a little deeper into those definitions, it's a jealousy that is spoken of only of God. And it is about demanding exclusive service to him because he is the severe avenger of a departure from himself. And it also means a word that talks about passion and its zeal. It's the jealous disposition of a husband or lovers. So last section, starting with verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So the first thing we learn is, to paraphrase Augustine, that God is going to give what he himself demands. In other words, as intimidating as it can be to read a book like James, where it would seem as though the standard that is required for our actions is a seemingly impossible one, perfection. We are still given a promise that if we humbly draw near to God, he will draw near to us. He is willing and able to help us overcome. And he supplies all that we need to serve him faithfully through the same spirit that convicts us of our double-mindedness in the first place. Spurgeon writes very convictingly, do you suffer from spiritual poverty? It is your own fault because he giveth more grace. If you have not got it, it is not because it is not to be had, but because you have not gone for it. So James says that the requirement to receive grace is humility. To recognize our spiritual poverty and then just acknowledge our desperate need of God's help and submit ourselves to his will. And James is offering a solution here to the quarrels and the strife and the fighting that we talked about at the beginning of the chapter. He is saying, in humility, submit yourself to God's authority. Because the devil is trying to try and do absolutely everything that he can to separate God and man. It's been what he's been doing since the very beginning, since the garden, and in the story of every single human being ever since, including you and me. And so James is going to exhort us to resist that pull and instead to press in and to draw near to God. So how do we do that? How do we draw near? 
James is going to say we need to offer up sincere and radical repentance from the sinful ways that he's been describing. And he's going to talk about how we have to demonstrate both inner and outer change. And he gives us an external behavior, cleanse your hands, and an internal attitude, purify your hearts. So your deeds and your disposition. And I was talking about this text with my mom earlier this week, and she was talking about how she loves the fact that sometimes we have to start from the outside and work in. We start with the actions, and then our heart slowly follows. And sometimes we get our heart right, and then the actions follow after that. And my mom said, and I quote her, she said, classic God. (laughs) He has different ways to reach the same goal. And so we're going to pursue both of those things, the external deeds, the internal heart, to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. We're seeing here another allusion to the Old Testament. We can talk about the responsibilities of the priests and the responsibilities of the prophets. The priestly duties that we see over and over in the Old Testament were about cleansing and about purification. Psalm 24, 3 through 4 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. And the prophetic role, often not a fun role, um, was often about the mourning and the warnings about the coming judgment of the Lord over the sinful actions of his people. And so it was a call to take seriously your sin and repent. So if there was any hope of delaying this judgment, that, that that would be possible. And so Luke 6.25 says, Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. And it's kind of ironic to me that even though this passage is telling us to turn from our laughter to mourning, radical repentance actually ends up producing joy. And that joy is going to overflow as our consciousness of all of our sins actually being actively forgiven, like settles in. And so, yes, we're turning from the joy and we're mourning over our actions and our sin, but that, in the end, ultimately takes us back to the joy. So, if the Bible is not a book to be obeyed, then James, with all of his real-world implications, is really just a curiosity that we take out of its case and we like turn it over in our hands and we comment on its oddity and then we put it back where it belongs on the shelf. But if the Bible is a book that we are to live out, then wrestling with these practical ethical questions is perhaps James's most important contribution because our natural tendency is to live fractured, inconsistent lives that are shaped and directed by our own whims and desires. Matthew 6.24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And in James, we have a call to wholeness and to integration that is consistent with the ways and the teachings of Jesus, to be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. And thankfully, James is well aware that we live in this in-between space where we have been saved, but we have not yet been glorified. And he acknowledges both that we have failed, we will fail, we will probably keep doing it. But he exhorts us to work towards the full inheritance that has been granted to us through Christ. For it is God's gracious character that is the basis for his plea for us to humble ourselves before God. 
we are receiving grace not because of anything that we are or anything that we've done, but because of everything that he already is and continues to be forever. And so how we live in response to receiving that gift provides a window into our hearts and our core values and our character. And so as the band comes back up and we kind of transition into communion, I think this is the moment where we recognize that God is on a mission to restore our divided hearts to wholeness. And there is nothing that he would not do to get us there, including but not limited to making sure that we learn how to walk this fine line between legalism and the authentic outpouring of our faith through our works, through how we live the, the details of our daily lives. And so here at the table, we see the bread and the wine as symbols of how we have been given everything that we need to draw near to God and to be received, even when we don't deserve to be. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your presence in this place. We thank you for your word. May it convict us. May we be a people who are shaped by it, who take it to heart, who are not content to just keep that religion in one area of our life, but instead let it spill over to every area. And even though it seems like it would be a very frightening thing to fully yield ourselves to you, you are completely trustworthy. And so we can do that and find that our lives are inexplicably full of joy because we have received full forgiveness for everything that we've done. We love you. The band is going to play a song, and while they're doing so, we invite you to walk up here to the front to take a little bit of the bread and take a cup, and then to go back to your seats and hold on to those different elements. And then I'll come back after the band has played that song and lead us through the taking of communion together.